anybody in here ever procrastinate? <laughs> think, you can think about it and raise your hand later if you want. <laughs> this story comes from Sittingbourne, Kent in the UK. A friend of mine who I'll call Dave, because that was his name, said he would do anything to avoid A-level revision. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't matter to the story either. At one point, he infamously found himself weighing the cat, convinced that he would only be able to settle down to work if he had that data to hand. As a result, some 25 years later, the act of procrastination is referred to by my family as weighing the cat. I have been inclined to weigh the cat in my life. And, and one of the things about weighing the cat, uh, somebody wise said to me recently that postponement and procrastination are not the same thing. So postponement is waiting to do something at the moment that it's appropriate or at the moment when it's the right timing. Procrastination is putting it off to some indefinite future time. And then when that indefinite future time arrives, knowing that it needs to wait longer. That's the procrastination part of it. This month, I'm going to be using a particular book for my talks by Gay Hendricks. This book is called Five Wishes, How Answering One Simple Question Can Make Your Dreams Come True. And in it, he relates a story about meeting a man at a party and not being a party person, either of them, and not liking small talk. They gravitated together and agreed that they didn't much like small talk, and so Gay Hendricks thought they were going to just hang out together silently when the man said to him, well, so would you like big talk or no talk? And he thought about that for a minute, and he, he said, well, I think I'd go for big talk. And he said, well, uh, the fellow said to him, well, do you want to go first or shall I? And he said, no, you go ahead, you go first. And he said, well, I almost died once. And Gay Hendricks thought, whoa, that is, that's big talk to start with at a party with somebody you just met. And he went on to tell a story, and he said, you know, uh, uh, Gay Hendricks said to him, well, what was that like? And he said, well, at the time, it was, it was very scary. It was awful. But in retrospect, I think it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I learned something in that experience that has served me for the rest of my life to help me make my dreams come true. And Gay Hendricks said, what was that? And he said, well, are you willing to play a little game with me? Are you willing to try this? And he said, sure, why not? So he said, I want you to imagine that you're on your deathbed and you're looking back over your life. And I'm going to ask you the question, was your life a complete success? Yes or no? And he said, well... If I'm on my deathbed looking back over my life, I'd have to say, no, my life wasn't a complete success. Now, at this time, Gay Hendricks was about 30 years old. The guy said, okay, so if you feel that it was not a complete success, you probably have some reasons why it was not a complete success. What were they? And so he said, well, I, I wish that I had had a long-lasting love relationship. I never got to experience that. And... I wish that I had told everybody in my life that I loved, that I loved them, or completed communications with them, or things that I left undone. I wish that I hadn't left so many things undone. And he went on, and he had five of these things that he said were um, things that were reasons why his life was not a complete success. And so the man said to him, okay, now 
take the first one, uh, but for our purposes here, I'm going to take the second one about incomplete communications. He said uh, incompletes in his life, that he wished he had told people he loved them, he wished he had gone back and apologized for things that he had done or told them the truth or made restitution or whatever. And all of those things were weighing on him that he hadn't ever gotten around to doing. And the fellow said, why is that important to you? And he said, because I, I want to have those feelings of connection and completeness and, and having made good on things that I promised that I never carried out. I want That would make me feel my life had been a success. He said, if you're really serious about it and you really want it, are you willing to make 100% commitment, body and soul to that in your life, to have that sense of completion? And he said, I, I kind of, shuddered all over at the thought, but I knew that the answer to that question was, yes, I really wanted that. He said, great, then what you want to do now is make a statement of why your life is complete because you have done that. And so he said something like, my life is a complete success because I'm always complete in all my communications with everyone in my life. I complete all the tasks I've said I'm going to do. I handle the things I've made commitments to. And he said, now that you have it in that form, are you willing to commit to living it that way so that when you come to the end of your life, you can say, this was a complete success? And this really got my attention because I was thinking about things in our lives that we don't get around to, things that are incomplete. Um, and, and what happens with them, at least this is what happens with me, the things that are incomplete in my life continue to bother me. I think about them from time to time. And when I think about them, I feel bad. I feel guilty or angry at myself or um, like I, I should go get up and do that right now. Can anybody relate to that? And yet I don't get up and go do it right now. I sit and feel bad about it instead. That's the substitution. So what happens is, in those instances that I come back around and around to those things again, it's as if I had turned a drain on just enough to drip continuously. And that is my energy for creativity, for new projects, for optimism and enthusiasm, for physical rejuvenation, for well-being for being present with other people because in the background this drip is going on all the time and it's draining away part of what belongs to me as my creative energy now I don't want to leave you with the impression that our creative energy is limited because of course it is abundant and it's always coming to us but what happens when the drain is open like that is that we never feel filled because even though there is a constant flow to us, we're not using it very well. And the, and the annoying part of many of these kinds of procrastination is that we make the issue so large that is unfinished that it seems insurmountable when we think about it. It seems like there's no way to really begin because it's so huge. I remember when I was um, a young mother and I was feeling overwhelmed by my life and my parenting and at that moment, the state of my house, which was messy, and I, I was feeling like the kitchen floor needed to be cleaned. And I lived in one of those houses that had a, a ranch-style <coughs> kitchen. So for me, looking at the kitchen floor was like standing at one end of a football field. 
it seemed to me like the expanse of floor that needed attention was so enormous I couldn't face it. And I remember saying something like this to a friend of mine, and she said, well, is it really that bad? And I said, I stick to it. And she said, well, you know, uh, you don't have to do all of it at once. What a concept. You don't have to do all of it at once. She said, pick a few squares, clean those. At least you will have made an, an impact on part of it. I was stunned. The thing that happens with procrastination, the thing that feeds procrastination is perfectionism. When we have to do it completely now and we have to do it completely perfect, it's too big to face, and so we put it off. And we put it off until we think we're going to have time to do it completely or do it completely perfectly. Is this making sense? So the two of them feed each other and they get us into trouble because they hold us locked in a pattern of inactivity, of paralysis in a sense. I have another story from London. In 1970, I moved house, dismantling my well-organized workbench. I then spent the next 30 years putting off reassembling it. I was forever hunting for a tool, screw, fuse, looking in a variety of boxes and shelves. I would spend 10 to 20 minutes on each search. Finally, 30 years later, I got to grips and put everything back in its place. I was astonished it only took me 45 minutes. At two 10-minute searches a month, that makes an incredible 120 hours solid work or three 40-hour work weeks. I cannot believe this, except that figures don't lie. This person had spent 120 hours of time on to avoid doing a 45-minute project. This is what it's like for us. I mean, really, it's sad and ridiculous at the same time, you know? The actual task, and I've found this over and over in my life, do you think it stops me from procrastinating? Actually, no. You would think with the evidence at hand, it would be clear that going forward would be the best thing to do. But often it doesn't happen. I have an incomplete I've been thinking about for, uh, let's see, 20 years. Probably the amount of time it would take me at any time to actually complete it would be maybe a half an hour. And here's what it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this. This is a secret. And so now that I've told you, perhaps I can go back and tell the person I haven't told this to. <laughs> In 1993, I was a minister of a large church in Santa Rosa, California. And a man who had been a student of mine, who actually lived in Southern California, but had a business in Northern California, uh, and so he couldn't take Science of Mind classes at his own church on that night, but he could with me, had come and taken classes with me. And at, at his church in Southern California, the, they had no minister uh, at this particular point in time. This was some years after he'd taken classes with me, several years later. And I knew that they were looking for a minister because I'd received the letter, like all the other ministers, saying they were looking for a minister, which I promptly round-filed in the trash, which is what I always did when these came in. And then I got a call from this guy. And he said, look, I think you'd be great at this church. I don't know why you would leave Santa Rosa. I know you've got a great thing going there. But I think you would be fabulous at this church. And we're candidating, and we haven't found the right person. And I said, yeah, I don't think so. And he said, look... Do, Consider this. 
consider coming as a guest speaker, not as a candidate, just as a guest speaker. And that way, you'll get introduced to the congregation, and you can see what you think of them, and they can see what they think of you, and no harm, no foul, you know. And I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll come and be a guest speaker. So I went and I guest spoke for their two services. I was introduced as a guest speaker, not a candidate. And afterwards, people kept saying to me, why don't you come and candidate? Gee, you'd be a great candidate. One lady came up to me, took me by the hands, looked me squarely in the eyes, and said, you're the one. And I said to her, no, you don't understand. I'm not candidating. I'm just here as a guest speaker. Without letting go, she said to me, you, you don't understand. You're the one. So I thought about it. And something in the universe moved in, inside of me, and I thought, okay, I'll candidate. So I did. And they decided that they wanted to hire me. And we went through a whole negotiation process, and I, I, uh, we finally came to an agreement. And they said, okay, now we're going to tell the congregation on Sunday, so please don't say anything to anyone yet, because people know each other, and the word could get back to our congregation, and we don't want them to hear it in a roundabout way. That We want them to hear it from us. So I said, okay, I won't say anything to anybody. Come the next week, we had a minister's meeting a minister's meeting in a part of Northern California where ministers came from all over. A lot of ministers there, so we had like 20 of them at the meeting. And one of the ministers there who had been a candidate at this church in Southern California got a phone call that morning from the church in Southern California before the meeting started. And she came up to me in front of all the ministers and said, well, congratulations, you got it. Now then, Sunday was several days away, and I'm thinking, I gave my word that I wouldn't say anything about this to anyone, and all of these ministers, if they know for sure this has happened, could say something to somebody. It could get back to this church in Southern California ahead of time, and I would have broken my word. So instead of saying thank you, I said to her, what are you talking about? And I acted like I didn't know, which she, of course, didn't believe. And so this, this minister who had, was senior to me in the ministry, because I was still a young minister, had been very kind to me up to that point. But it created a great rift in our relationship after that. And in fact, she always believed that they always knew they wanted me, that the whole candidating process had been a ruse so that it would look official so they could hire me and that I was in on it. And all these years, I've never told her that basically I lied to her in that moment or why I did. And every time I think about it, I feel guilty and ashamed of not having told her the truth. And at the same time, as a young minister, I wasn't sure how to keep my word and be truthful in that moment with her at the same time. Do you know what I mean? And so that is an incomplete for me that has bothered me much longer than the time it now took me to tell you that story that I could tell her or write to her and say that, right? So think of the amount of energy that has been wasted in the moments when I'm busy feeling guilty and thinking about that experience over the years. Because it's happened more than once a year, for sure, 
in the intervening 20 years, right? So all of that time, which has been completely unproductive, that I've thought about this, weighed it, mulled it over, blamed myself, blamed her, blamed them, you know, is still laying there, undone and unfinished. Does anybody have anything like that in your life? An unfinished communication, something that you feel the pull to complete, but you haven't done it. So one of the things about the power of completion is that it gives us a gift back. Um, Gay Hendricks started to make a list. He made a list of all the things that were incomplete in his life. Twelve pages. Twelve pages of incompletes. And they fell into categories like unspoken truths, which is kind of mine, love that had not been communicated to people that he cared about, broken promises and agreements, and money he owed people. Those were the main categories. He said there are probably more. He doesn't have the 12 pages anymore, so he can't remember, but those were the main ones. And what he did was he began to go through them one by one and have those conversations or apologize for broken promises or make them right one by one. And he said, I soon discovered a magical surprise. Any significant act of completion unleashes a hidden power a rocket fuel for manifesting your heart's desires. Every time I completed anything that had an emotional charge, I liberated a new wave of energy that increased my velocity toward my cherished goals. See, one of the subconscious things that goes on in us when we're incomplete about things that we feel guilty about is that we are holding ourselves back from our greater good because we don't deserve it yet. Does that make sense? We don't do it consciously, but that drain on our consciousness, on our creativity, on our, on our love, on our appreciation of ourselves is constantly going on. William James, the philosopher, psychologist, and physician, by the way, he was the first person to offer a course in psychology in the United States. He said, nothing is so fatiguing as the eternal hanging on of an uncompleted task. Nothing is so fatiguing as the eternal hanging on of an uncompleted task. So the things that, you, you know, in a way, our incompletes are kind of like our bucket list. They're not only the things that we would like to experience if we could get them all done before we leave the planet, but also the things that we wish we had done or handled. Yeah? So in terms of making something complete then, the process is pretty simple. But what we need then is the energy or the encouragement or the belief in possibility to actually go ahead and do it, to actually go ahead and move toward what's incomplete. You know, um, Edwin Gaines, the uh, unity minister who teaches prosperity, once said, if you've got a lot of frogs to swallow, swallow the big one first. So maybe it's helpful to tackle a couple of small things to get yourself warmed up, but then to take on something that is one of the bigger energy drains and deal with it because the amount of power that it liberates for you can help you sail through some of the easier ones quite quickly. Or go the other way. What the heck? Ernest Holmes, our founder, says this, if we would come to the universal wholeness, we must approach it through the law of its own nature. We find our particular good 
only through unity with life. This conscious unity makes our mind receptive to completion, since life itself is complete. So when we unify ourselves with others, in this act of communication, we create a sense of completion, a larger sense of completion that can include a sense of completion for them as well. We are aligning ourselves with the universe, with its process of completion. You never go someplace and find a river half finished. It's always complete from the beginning source of water to the end source of water. Or if it trickles off into the desert, it trickles off. It's never just like, boom, well, ran out of something and just stopped right there. That river just, it just doesn't quite finish itself. It always continues to a natural endpoint. And one of the things I think that helps us to take action is encouragement. Yes? Encouragement. Cur being heart, filled with heart. Encouragement. Um, yesterday I went to my grandson's soccer game. Now my grandson is five years old. He has never played soccer before in his life. He's not uh, a natural athlete. So mostly being on the soccer field is running around and not necessarily in the direction that the ball is going, and not necessarily toward the goal, or even paying attention to the other players on the field, whether they're his or somebody else's. And it's not only him. They're all kind of like this. But the parents on the sidelines who are hollering instructions or corrections at the children, and I'm thinking... They don't know what the heck they're doing. And they really don't require criticism, right? They, they really don't require criticism. It's like, well, if we don't tell them what they're doing wrong, they're not going to know to correct it. Actually, that's not the point right now, you know? And what happens, I see, is that they get into this situation, like my grandson does sometimes, where he'll say, I can't do it. It's too hard. I can't do it. Never mind that whatever he can't do is something he hasn't tried yet. I can't do it. It's too hard. And I think, wow, that is kind of like the mantra of humanity for so many things, isn't it? I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not going to try because I might get criticized, and that is too painful. So I can't do it. I won't try. Gosh. So we, however old we are, We've been carrying with us a certain level of you're doing it wrong and I'm not going to try. I can't do it right, so I'm not going to try. Can anybody relate to I'm not going to try because I can't do it right? Is that one you've heard or done yourself? And see, this is the perfectionism thing again, right? And so we, we don't do it because I can't do it right. I don't understand it. I'm afraid to ask for help. Somebody might laugh at me. I'm going to get criticized. I'll look like a fool. Any of those things sound familiar? And so we find ourselves in a, in a place where we're not only stuck, but we're mad at ourselves because we're stuck, but we haven't given ourselves any, any outs at all. So who's going to be the vehicle for encouragement now? If we're waiting for other people to figure out that we need encouragement, probably we're going to sit in that little place by ourselves for a long time. The source of encouragement that's actually useful has to be inside of ourselves. It, it really does. We have to be the voice of encouragement as much as we have been the voice of criticism that we learned somewhere and repeated to ourselves. So if we're going to become the voice of encouragement, we need to find encouraging words to use. 
And we need to be willing to pay attention to what feels soothing to us. Like, what if you just did part of it instead of all of it? What if you just chose a little bit and let that be enough? What if you just make a start and then tomorrow do a little bit more? I don't think that Michelangelo ever created an entire sculpture in one day, maybe little ones. But none of the huge monuments that we look at, they took months. Maybe some of them took years. A little bit at a time. Just a little bit at a time. That's what we actually need. Just a little bit at a time. Robert Benchley, the humorist, said, I can complete any task I'm assigned as long as I have something more important to do. In other words, it can be really interesting to reorganize my desk when it's time to write an article that I haven't figured out how to start. It can be important that I know how much the cat weighs before I start on a project that seems too big to work on, right? How much does this cat weigh? I'm not going to do this revision until I know how much this cat weighs. Judy Tenuta, who is a comedian, said, my mother always told me I wouldn't amount to anything because I procrastinate. And I told her, just wait. When we complete something, we regain a little bit of energy to complete something else. I encourage you to look for small things and begin completing them. In 1 James, in the Bible, it says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything perseverance in us. I want to read you a little story. I'm going to stop with this today. This is from Robert Fulgham's book, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. The rap on the door was a sharp, urgent, insistent, a foreboding of crisis. Rappity, 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 rap. Me rushing to the door, fumbling with the lock, pumping my adrenaline, preparing for an emergency. Small boy odd expression, hands me a scrawled note on much folded paper. My name is Donnie. I will rake your leaves. One dollar a yard. I am deaf. You can write to me. I can read. I rake good. Across the back of our house is a row of middle-aged matronly maple trees, extravagantly dressed in season and in a million leaf sequins. And in season, the sequins detach. Not much wind in our sheltered yard, so the leaves lie about the ladies' feet now like dressing gowns they've stepped out of in preparation for the bath in winter. I like the way it looks. I like the way it looks very much. My wife does not. The gardening magazine does not like it either. Leaves should be raked. There are rules. Leaves are not good for grass. Leaves are untidy. Leaves are moldy slimy. But I like leaves so much. I once filled my classroom at school ankle deep with them. There is a reason for leaves. There's no reason for mowed grass, so say I. My wife does not see it this way. There is an unspoken accusation in the air of laziness. We have been through this before. 
But this year, a bargain has been struck in the name of the scientific method. Half the yard will be properly raked, and the other half will be left in the care of nature. Come summer, we shall see. And so her part is raked, and mine is not. Let it be. Like a pilot in a fog relying on limited instruments, the boy looks intently at my face for information. He knows I have leaves. He has seen them. Mine is the only yard in the neighborhood with leaves, in fact. He knows his price is right. Solemnly, he holds out pencil and paper for my reply. How can I explain to him about the importance of the scientific experiment going on in my backyard? In a way, the trees are there because of the leaves. With unbridled extravagance, zillions of seeds have helicoptered out of the sky to land like assault forces to green the earth. The leaves follow to cover, protect, warm, and nourish the next generation of trees. It has been thus for eons, and we mess with the process at our peril, say I. This is important. My name is Donnie. I will rake your leaves, one dollar a yard. I am deaf. You can write to me. I can read. I rake good. He holds out the pencil and paper with patience and hope and goodwill. There are times when even the simplest of events call all of one's existential motives into question. What would I do if he wasn't deaf? What will it do for him if I say no? If I say yes? What difference? We stand in each other's long silence, inarticulate for different reasons. In the same motion, he turns to go, and I reach for the pencil and paper to write solemnly, yes. Yes, I would like to have my leaves raked. A grave nod from the attentive businessman child. Do you do it when they are wet? Yes, he writes. Do you have your own rake? No. This is a big yard. There are lots of leaves. Yes. I think I should give you two dollars. A smile. Three, he writes. <laughs> a grin. We have a contract. The rake is produced, and Donnie, the deaf leak raker, goes to work in the fast-falling November twilight. In silence, he rakes. In silence, I watch through the window of the dark house. Are there any sounds at all in his mind, I wonder? Or only the hollow, empty sea sound I get when I put my fingers in my ears as tightly as I can? Carefully, he rakes the leaves into a large pile as instructed. Yes, I'm thinking I will spread them out over the yard again after he's gone. I am stubborn about this. Carefully, he goes back over the yard, picking up missed leaves by hand and carrying them to the pile. He is also stubborn about his values. Raking leaves means all the leaves. Signing that he must go because it is dark and he must go have something to eat, he leaves the work unfinished. Having paid in advance, I wonder if he will return. At age 45, I'm cynical too cynical. Come morning, he has returned to his task, first checking the previously raked yard for latecomers. He takes pride in his work. The yard is leaf-free. I note his picking up several of the brightest yellow leaves and putting them into the pocket of his sweatshirt, along with a whole handful of helicoptered seeds. Rappity, 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 rap! He reports to the door, signing that his work is done. As he walks away up the street, I see him tossing one helicoptered seed into the air at a time. Fringe benefits. I stand in my own door, 
in my own silence, smiling at his grace, fringe benefits. Tomorrow, I will go out and push the pile of leaves over the bank into the compost heap at the bottom of the ravine behind our house. I will do it in silence. The leaves and the seeds will have to work out their destiny there this year. I could not feel right about undoing his work. My experiment with science will have to stand aside for something more human. The leaves let go, the seeds let go, and I must let go sometimes too and cast my lot with another of nature's imperfect but tenacious survivors. Hold on, Donnie. Hold on. In this case, something new about completion was learned. That what was complete for this little boy, what he kept his agreement to do, what he came back to complete, transformed another person's perception and experience. We have no idea what the completions that we undertake what blessings will be let loose in the universe by those completions that simply seem to have been things that we've procrastinated about. So I invite you to stop taking them so seriously you don't do them, but take them seriously enough to know that they matter and begin to give yourself and the universe this great gift of completion, this great freedom of the light. Namaste.